Welcome to Angels and Seer Stones. I'm Chris. And I'm Christine. This week we're talking about one of the most controversial topics of the Latter-day Saint past, treasure digging. Don Bradley is going to join us to discuss Miner's Hill, a property associated with treasure seeking in New York, which is currently for sale. Plus, we'll discuss the legend of Camorra's Cave, allegedly the current whereabouts of the gold plates, the sword of Laban, and other Nephite artifacts. Don argues that the legendary cave is directly tied to Miner's Hill. Latter-day Saints are a people of radical faith. We are a unique body of Bible-believing Christians. For us, the scriptural canon has been opened. The traditional sacraments have expanded. Our beliefs and practices are steeped in universalism, esotericism, and apocalypticism. The Latter-day Saint tradition is a religion in which angels visit everyday people, and sometimes men and women see the divine in stones. In this podcast, we examine lived religion of Latter-day Saints, the stories we tell, and the beliefs we debate. We take seriously the whole gambit of Latter-day Saint experience. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Angels and Seer Stories. Hey guys, we created an Instagram page. Stop what you're doing now and follow us. We hope this will be a new way to engage with our audience. We'll be sharing quotes, topics, and stories that don't appear on our weekly episodes. So Christine, start us out. What is treasure digging? Sure. So treasure digging, sometimes called treasure seeking or money digging, was a popular practice of searching for lost riches. In the 19th century, there were legends about Native Americans or even pirates who had buried their wealth. And to find the gold, you could hire a money digger who might have a seer stone or a divining rod to aid them in that quest. And I think this is really odd because the podcast is called Angels and Seer Stones, but we haven't actually defined divining rods or seer stones. A seer stone or a peepstone is a stone, a rock, that allows a gifted individual to see what is not otherwise visible with his natural sight. In addition to the location of the treasure, the seer could also detect the guardian spirits that were believed to protect it. Now, a divining rod is used by a dowser to locate treasure, or more commonly, to find underground water for the construction of a well. And this is the reason sometimes you hear these dowsers referred to as water witches. Yeah. And so dowsing is a practice that continues to this day as well. In fact, not too long ago, Chris's father had a man visit their family farm in Virginia to investigate this mysterious looking tree on the property. Sure did. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about this in more detail in another episode. But when this man showed up, he came with the divining rod or with two divining rods. I don't know what my family was expecting, but they definitely didn't prepare me to witness what I think of as a 19th century folk practice firsthand in the 21st century. There were some differences, of course. In the 19th century, it was common for people to use a single rod. As you noted, he brought two. Um, these were two metal rods bent at a 90-degree angle. So they roughly had the shape of a pistol. And they would turn. They would cross for either a yes or a no. And then they would uh, diverge. It was, it was pretty interesting. And it could also point him directions of various things. He... Uh, he got separated from one of the other dowsers um, that had come and visited the farm. And when that dowser finally found us by the tree, um, after they'd searched, he said to them, why didn't you just ask the rod? It would have pointed you directly here. Right. And so you mentioned previously that he uses this rod specifically to communicate with the tree, which I think is kind of interesting. It was definitely an experience. 
But the point is, there's still dowsers out there. But when we hear about treasure digging as Latter-day Saints, we're often faced with this question of whether or not Joseph Smith was an occultist. And since we don't know much about the occult, we assume that this means that it was a non-Christian practice that might involve evil spirits. Yeah, some people have even kind of labeled it devil worship. Joseph and his family, like many individuals in the Northeast, were interested in treasure seeking. They knew the legends of Captain Kidd and others who, according to the stories, left their riches in the soil and caves of the region. And they did not see this as a non-Christian practice. And Joseph Smith definitely participated in treasure digging. He talks about this quite openly. You know, I want to read a bit from the Gospel Topics essay that the church released entitled Treasure Seeking. It says, Joseph Smith critics often tried to disparage him by calling him a money digger or a treasure seeker. Rather than deny the charge, Joseph acknowledged in his official history that Josiah Stowell had hired him in 1825 to assist in treasure-seeking venture in North Pennsylvania. Stowell wanted his help because Joseph was reputed by some of his neighbors to be a, quote, seer, someone who could look into a special stone and find lost or hidden objects. In the 1820s, a fascination with purported Spanish treasure deposits led prospectors like Josiah Stowell to enlist the aid of seers like Joseph in their search for treasure. There's more in this essay, but my point is that Joseph's involvement in treasure-seeking isn't in debate in official sources of the church. But it's fair to say that it's caused us some anxiety. The very first anti-Mormon book is Eber D. Howe's Mormonism Unveiled, published in 1834. And it's a collection of stories from people who knew the Smith family in the 1820s, or at least they knew the rumors circulating about the family. And they wanted to portray them as questionable, superstitious, and unsavory characters. Of course, people question the reliability of some of these stories. But it's a fascinating source to see how people viewed the Smith family or at least reimagined them once Joseph had published the Book of Mormon and organized the church. From the 1970s and 1980s, Latter-day Saints would most commonly hear these stories from critical sources. And of course, Latter-day Saints thought of this as slander when it came from the Godmakers or other anti-Mormon tracts rather than a report of historical events. And at some level, it was. Their portrayal of treasure-seeking was designed for us to see the Smith family in a similar light as Eber D. Howe's Mormonisms and Veil, as you mentioned. But treasure-seeking was a common supernatural belief held by Christians in the 19th century. It was a folk practice. For sure, it wasn't practiced by wealthy elites. It wasn't passed down by official denominations. But those who participated in it saw themselves as a part of a more ancient practice, like others who sought divine guidance through prayer and dreams or believe that communicating with angels was possible. Of course, there are negative 19th century portrayals of this practice as well. There sure are. Treasure diggers are shadowy characters obsessed with the occult. Check out this reading from Washington Irving's Tales of a Traveler. And if that name sounds familiar, Irving was that great early American author who brought us the legend of Sleepy Hollow. He had passed some years of his youth among the Harz Mountains of Germany, and had derived much valuable instruction from the miners, touching the mode of seeking treasure buried in the earth. He had prosecuted his studies also under a traveling sage who united the mysteries of medicine with magic and ledger domain. His mind, therefore, had become stored with all kinds of mystic lore. He had dabbled a little in astrology, alchemy, divination, knew how to detect stolen money, and to tell where springs of water lay hidden. Later, he explains the process of how he would go about recovering treasure. 
he had informed him that much secrecy and caution must be observed in enterprises of the kind, that money is only to be digged for at night with certain forms and ceremonies, the burning of drugs, the repeating of mystic words, and, above all, the seekers must first be provided with a divining rod, which had the wonderful property of pointing to the very spot on the surface of the earth under which treasure lay hidden. I like how Irving portrays treasure diggers as an, uh, an apprentice to professional miners, but also to alchemists and astrologers and those who, what do you say, united the mysteries of medicine with magic. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's quite the image and probably a fairly accurate one. This idea that they're combining the knowledge of mining and medicine and they're using it alongside supernatural belief. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, I got to sit down with Don Bradley, the author of The Lost 116 Pages, and a well-respected Latter-day Saint historian. Don's been our friend for more than 15 years, starting back when we were students at Utah State University in the early 2000s. At that point, Don had left the church a few years before, but later, we were blessed to attend his rebaptism, and it was a really awesome experience. Yeah, it was. For those of you unfamiliar with Don, you need to know he is encyclopedic. And he's obsessive. He knows all the facts. And we're going to get into some the nitty gritty of these conversations about treasure digging, about Miner's Hill. We're going to hear a number of ideas from Don. But first, I asked him to weigh in on why Latter-day Saints sometimes find Joseph Smith's involvement in treasure seeking disturbing. And this is what he had to say. I actually think that Latter-day Saint concerns about Joseph Smith being a treasure digger go back very far. And to some extent, they originate with Joseph Smith himself. So um, as early as 1831, we have a a dissenting Latter-day Saint uh, writing letters saying that, you know, Joseph Smith had used a seer stone uh, that he used for the translation of the Book of Mormon previously for treasure digging. Treasure digging was a common activity, but it wasn't seen as a particularly reputable activity. So it might be today kind of like gambling or something. You know, it's like it's it's there are a lot of people who do it. A lot of people go to Vegas and gamble. But like it's it has sort of a morally ambiguous character to it. It's frowned upon, you know, and so on. And so um, Joseph Hiram asked Joseph shortly after Ezra Booth writes these letters about the seer stone and the treasure digs. Hiram asked Joseph at a church conference, um, Joseph, tell, tell all about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And Joseph says, it was not intended to tell all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And so clearly he's kind of skittish about giving some of the details. Later on, when Joseph gives his official history, he says that um, he acknowledges having been involved in treasure digging, uh, that he was hired by Josiah Stoll, but he wants to emphasize his role as a hired hand, helping with the actual digging aspect of it. He, he's not keen to talk about anything having to do with using a seer stone or anything like that. And so I think that um, Joseph himself shows concern over how this will be perceived by other people. Will the sort of uh, stigma attached to treasure digging then attached to the Book of Mormon? 
And so he's, he's concerned to separate the two so that the stigma of treasure digging over here does not get attached to and stuck to the Book of Mormon to add sort of disrepute to the Book of Mormon. He doesn't want that to happen. And so that's maybe sort of the beginning of that concern. And then more recently, I think that some of the concern that people have about treasure digging in a Latter-day Saint context, Joseph Smith's treasure digging, is that um, the treasure digs were basically unsuccessful, right? And so people are um, maybe afraid that it means Joseph Smith couldn't really, he, he didn't really have a gift as a seer, or maybe he, um, or, 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 or they're sensitive to the idea that, you know, some people might see this as him pulling a con on other people. And so that, that again, they don't, I think they don't want for their, in their own minds or for others, they don't want the sort of stigma of, the treasure digging to get attached to the Book of Mormon and matters of faith. Of course, Don is correct. And some Latter-day Saints have come to see Joseph's treasure digging as a part of his initiation as a prophet. Right. And I think that's largely thanks to writings of Richard Bushman and D. Michael Quinn and decades later, Mark Asher's McGee and Samuel Brown and others. Yeah. And these are all truly brilliant scholars who help reframe, you know, our understanding of occult practices. That is that sometimes in early America, occult practices were also expressions of folk Christianity. And you'll probably see us drawing on many of these folklore-inflected scholars throughout our podcast. But the question here is, why wouldn't you know we find Joseph's treasure digging disturbing? Well, I'm really touched by thinking of it as a key moment in Joseph's life, between his first vision and his experience with Moroni. Remember, the Savior tells Joseph to keep himself apart from the different Christian churches, So we have an adolescent who is staying away from others whose most dangerous belief is various levels of cessationism. And that means that they believe God has stopped talking and that miracles have ceased. That's right. And who does Joseph find to be his friends? A set of very odd believers who maybe are out for personal wealth, but they also share a commitment to the idea that God, angels, and spirits are a part of their everyday lives. Now, when Joseph eventually encountered an angel, Moroni, in his bedroom, It was not part of his treasure digging enterprise. The encounter came in response to a completely non-controversial act of teenage repentance. This would result in an angel telling him about the whereabouts of the gold plates that he would be tasked to translate the Book of Mormon from. And he saw the location, the the Hill Cumorah, right, in his mind, a vision. But then when Joseph knelt before the gold plates in person, he immediately thought about it as a means to get his family out of poverty. There were unquestionable similarities with other treasure quests, other treasure quests Joseph would participate in. But Joseph would have to get the idea of personal aggrandizement out of his system before he could do God's work and translate the plates. So you think God is using Joseph's initial experience with treasure diggers to establish his faith, and I suppose in a sense as a tool for evolving his personal mission. It isn't about prosperity and financially securing his family's future, but about ultimately revealing spiritual truths or treasures. And I think we see eye to eye on some of this. You see this rejection of cessationism as preserved among treasure diggers. And he has to weed out the good from the greedy. And I like that. But my personal reading of this is that God is selecting a young boy whose magical worldview is directing his life. He's a boy. He's thinking like a boy does. Family is living in fairly established poverty. And he sees a way out. I think the willingness to believe that hopeful outlook of a young seeker allows him to see past the barriers of 1960s of 19th century Christianity. 
It's not necessarily the seer stone or the dousing rods. It's the faith and the possibility that the divine will intercede on his behalf, on his family's behalf. The faith of a curious and innocent young believer. I like that image. Some Latter-day Saints, and it sounds like you'd be among them, think that God used Joseph's treasure digging, but that there was nothing particularly sacred about the practice at all. They interpret Joseph's comments about his transgressions between the first vision and Moroni's appearance as a reference to his treasure digging activities. You remember this passage about Joseph's foibles. He's keeping the wrong company. Um, he doesn't have any great sins, but there's some issues that he's repenting of when he comes to Moroni. And I think that's a possibility. And in either case, this treasure digging mo moment in Joseph Smith's life is a fascinating part of his story that we really don't have any official or obvious interpretations of. Yeah, like so many other stories of our collective past, we get to make sense of this one for ourselves. We absolutely do. So let's get back to our conversation with Don. Don told me about a little-known historic site in Palmyra, New York, referred to as Miner's Hill. It had been rediscovered and excavated to some degree in 2015. Miner's Hill Cave is a Palmyra, New York treasure-digging site that the Joseph Smith Sr. family and the neighbors, the Chase family, were involved with in the 1820s. So uh, Miner's Hill, in Joseph Smith's time, actually was owned not by Amos Miner, that it gets named after later. He's another generation after. It's actually owned by someone better known to Latter-day Saint historians, Abner Cole. So Abner Cole is the editor of the Palmyra Reflector, and uh, he prints his newspaper out of the uh, E.B. Grandin print office where the Book of Mormon itself is printed, uh, actually prints some ex excerpts that he sort of purloins from the Book of Mormon uh, manuscript while it's at the printer uh, in 30 and 31. 1830 and 31, he prints... Um, some stories about Joseph Smith and treasure digging and the infamous Lumen Walter, uh, his involvement with Palmyra treasure digging and so on. So um, the uh, Abner Cole owns the hill at the time. So any digging that would have happened there in the 1820s, any treasure digging is actually would have been on his property. So the report that we have from later people in Palmyra residents in reminiscences is that Alvin Smith in the early 1820s, like 1822, 23, uh, until he died in uh, November of 23, was involved, very involved in a treasure dig in Miners Hill. Miners Hill is just uh, a mile up road from the Hill Camorra. It's very close. And so the Alvin Smith's involved, reportedly Joseph Smith Sr. is heavily involved in the dig. And sort of secondarily, Joseph Smith Jr. gets involved. And uh, the Chase family, who are close neighbors to the Smiths, are very involved in the dig. Uh, they have, you know, diviners and seers in their family um, and are, are involved in the same sort of treasure searching milieu. And... Um, there is a <clears throat> excuse me. There is a long tunnel that's dug into the hill, an artificial cave or tunnel that is, by some reports, it was like forty feet long. By others, about a hundred feet long. 
I actually think that the latter report is closer to the truth because that hill has been continuously known since Joseph Smith's time. So as Don relayed the history of Miner's Hill, I became curious how the site was remembered over time. Did people recall this treasure digging history? Was there folklore about the, the site? Starting in the early 1860s, we have historical memory about it where people are talking about the site being associated with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, not just a treasure dig, but the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And specifically, they're saying that it was uh, like uh, involved in the Book of Mormon's translation. So they're saying that the Book of Mormon's translation manuscript was produced there in the hill. And we have this coming from Tucker, I think is the first person to talk about that. I believe it's 1862. Um, Tucker worked in the at the E.B. Grandin Press. Uh, and so he was in a position to know what was being said at the press. So remember, the Book of Mormon manuscript is actually being taken to the press for the printing process. Now, because the initial portion of the Book of Mormon's original translation manuscript had been stolen, you know, the, the lost 116 pages of the Book of Mormon, because that had been stolen, Joseph was unwilling to have the, the, the remaining portions of the original manuscript taken out of his and Oliver's hands and taken to the printer in case they got stolen there. And so he required Oliver and others to make a copy of that manuscript. So to transcribe from the original manuscript to the printer's manuscript, right? And then this is what they're taking in to the Grandin print shop. So you have Tucker remembering that the, the, the manuscript is produced, the book is translated in a cave with apparent reference to in a, a local cave. So he'd be referring to Miner's Hill Cave, this artificial cave that they, he, he actually says it was an artificial cave. So it's a cave that they dug. It's a tunnel. So um, uh, several years later, we have uh, John H. Gilbert saying similar things. And, uh, and, and then we have a variety of other people saying, you know, the Book of Mormon was translated in a cave. So this, this becomes lore, right? These stories of like the Book of Mormon being translated in a cave. And part of what interests me is how does the lore get started? So John H. Gilbert, the guy has a fantastic memory. How do we know that? Because he gave detailed descriptions of the manuscript that was brought to him at the press, the printer's manuscript. We have the printer's manuscript. And Royal Skousen of the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project has looked at that manuscript and has compared it to John H. Gilbert, the typesetter, John H. Gilbert's descriptions of it. And Gilbert's descriptions are spot on. And so we can test John H. Gilbert's memory. And it turns out the guy's got a fantastic memory. He's remembering events something like a half century earlier. Right? His accounts are in the late 1870s, early 1880s. So about a half century after all these events happen. But he, he remembers these things spot on. Now, one of the things that he says then, when he says um, this manuscript that's brought to him was produced in a cave, that Joseph and Oliver are in a cave translating, well, we, we know that they didn't translate in a cave, right, around Palmyra. We know that actually they were at the Joseph Smith home down in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and then they were at the Whitmer home up in Fayette, New York. There's no no room in this narrative for a cave in Palmyra, right, as the place of translation. 
So is John H. Gilbert just uncharacteristically wrong, just like confabulating this story? Or is he actually remembering something, but in a like partly confused way? I would actually favor the latter. Okay. So um, uh, Oliver Cowdery is producing this manuscript. Um, he is, he moves into the Hiram Smith cabin with the rest of the Smith family. So there are like eight of them living in this cabin. Uh, he's trying to do the work of the transcription. We don't know how he manages that in this tiny space, right? Laying out the original manuscript, laying out the printer's manuscript. He does, he signs letters that he writes while he's doing that transcription work. He writes Joseph Smith letters saying, hey, I just got to, you know, Alma 36 or whatever in our chaptering, right? And he quotes it. And um, we know from the fact that he's quoting it that he's actually got the manuscript in front of him, right? So um, from the fact that, um, so we know that while he's doing this copying work, he's writing these letters. Well, he signs the, he dates the letter and he signs it that he's writing from Palmyra. Um, uh, no, he's writing from, sorry, Manchester. The Smiths at the time were actually living in Palmyra. So he appears to not be writing from the Smith home. So something that Casey Kern, um, who helped uncover the cave, initially posited and that then I've started working with him on. And this is, there's, this is conjectural, right? We're just trying to build a model that explains the data is what if Oliver is actually accessing this cave, right? The Smiths had had access to this property. They'd helped create this cave. What if he's actually going to the cave to do transcription work? Uh, and then, you know, he brings the uh, transcription manuscript, the printer's manuscript to into town, you know, to John H. Gilbert from the cave. And so Gilbert, has this idea that the manuscript's being produced in a cave, but then he later conflates that transcription of the manuscript with the actual translation of the manuscript. And so we have a story that he and another person at the printer's office, right, are telling, hey, they translated in a cave. Okay, this is really interesting. So Don is saying that the site becomes less known for treasure digging and actually becomes memorialized or remembered in the community as a site related to the Book of Mormon. That's right. Don had more to say about folklore related to Miner's Hill that I found particularly interesting. He thinks the cave is tied into Camorra's cave, and we'll share his words in a minute. But first, let's talk about this legend. Okay, so Camorra's cave is, according to the legend, the current repository of gold plates, the sort of Laban, and other Nephite artifacts. I know all of you know the story. Beginning in the decade after Joseph's death, this begins to circulate and is even recorded. It's possible it was told, you know, much earlier on, but we don't have any sure evidence of that. If you're interested in these different accounts, Cameron J. Packer published an article in the 2004 issue of the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. That includes 10 or 12 different accounts of the story. The version we'll share today comes from a sermon by Brigham Young on June 17, 1877. Check it out. Oliver Cowdery went with the prophet Joseph when he deposited these plates. Joseph did not translate all of the plates. There was a portion of them sealed, which you can learn from the book of Doctrine and Covenants. When Joseph got the plates, the angel instructed him to carry them back to the hill Cumorah, which he did. 
Oliver says that when Joseph and Oliver went there, the hill opened. And they walked into a cave in which there was a large and spacious room. He says he did not think at the time whether they had the light of the sun or artificial light, but that it was just as light as day. They laid the plates on the table. It was a large table that stood in the room. Under this table, there was a pile of plates as much as two feet high. And there were all together in this room, more plates than probably many wagon loads. They were piled up in the corners and along the walls. The first time they went there, the sword of Laban hung upon the wall. But when they went again, they had been taken down and laid upon the table across the gold plates. It was unsheathed and on it was written these words, this sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. I tell you this is coming not only from Oliver Cowdery, but others who are familiar with it and who understood it just as well as we understand coming to this meeting. So the story is that there is a concealed cave that is storing the plates and other historical or sacred objects. And it seems this story takes on an apocalyptic significance with the drawing of the Sword of Laban. I like this. I would definitely like to discuss the Sword of Laban. Um, we need to do that. But for now, let's look at how Don Bradley interprets the story through the lens of Miner's Hill. Yeah, I, I definitely think that there is a link between Miner's Hill Cave and the so-called cave of records in Mormon lore, where it's reportedly Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery go, and they see that there are stacks of ancient records, uh, like the Book of Mormon's Golden Plates. This, uh, these accounts of like a cave of records tend to show up in like the, the mid to late 1800s out in Utah. And sometimes the people involved, like Brigham Young, are actually saying like, I heard this from Oliver Cowdery, that there was this cave. We have David Whitmer, one of the you know co-witness to the Book of Mormon with Oliver Cowdery, saying in about 1881 that there, there was a cave near the Hill Cumorra. He says it wasn't in Cumorra. It was near that place, he says, where there was a cave with these records. Well, Miner's Hill Cave is a mile from Kimura. It's definitely, it's a cave that he would have known about that was near the Hill Kimura. And so I, I think that at least some of that lore about a cave of records is being influenced by Miner's Hill Cave. So I thought that was pretty interesting to hear Don speculate about the connection between these two stories. But a more obvious question to me is how we know that this site is really the Miner's Hill of Palmyra's past. Don explained. Um, it's it's easy to identify, again, most of the people writing about it in the 1800s identified it as Miner's Hill, named after the uh, residents who were there from, I believe, about 1840, or maybe even, uh, I could be wrong, but I thought that the owner, Amos Miner, showed up being at that hill in the 1840 census, which has actually put him there in the 1830s, right? So the Smiths and Chases would have been digging there in the 1820s. Amos Minor comes along in the 1830s. So when people identify this hill that they dug in as Miner's Hill, uh, that gives us a very a strong continuity of identity for the hill 
over time. So we, we, we know what hill this was. And when people talk about the deep tunnel dug in the hill, well, this, this miner's hill has just such a tunnel. So <clears throat> there are mentions of it throughout a long um, time in the historical record. And then in the early 1970s, there's a newspaper article about it in Palmyra that talks about the tunnel was still there inside the hill. Sometime after that, the entrance is either they either caves in or is deliberately covered over by the owner. And so uh, the cave is, is known but lost at that point. And then in 2015, uh, my good friend Casey Kern and Greg Pavoni, they go out, or do you know, is it Pavone? Pavoni? Um, like uh, they go out to uh, Palmyra, Manchester. They talk with the current owner of the property who had heard all about the, the, the local talk about that cave inside the hill. And so they use like a backhoe and they swipe into the hill and they uncover the tunnel and they, they uncover an opening into the tunnel and they go in and it's um, <clears throat> they did apparently add some supports inside, but I don't think they really added supports to the entrance. And so over the last several years, the entrance has collapsed, has closed in. But, but there would still be cave there uh, in that part and possibly in other sections. But maybe the other sections of the cave survive deeper into the hill. This site is actually currently for sale and it has a home on it with 10 acres. So Don hopes that someone who supports LDS history will purchase the site. You know, I think we'll close with Don's. So we come to an urgent situation with this historic site. So... The site is important because it dates to the 1820s and was connected with the Joseph Smith Sr. family. So it may actually have material culture remnants of the Smith family and others digging there, you know, broken pieces of a pickaxe or thing, other things that they took in with them that got dropped. You know, It um, could be very revealing about early 19th century treasure digging because mostly what we have when it comes to early treasure digs in the early Republic is we have texts about them. We have texts, but we don't have uh, detailed dig sites that have been excavated in order to learn more about what the digging practices are. If we're going to really understand more than what these texts can give us, we need a good site and Miner's Hill Cave is it's it's more than just a hole in the you know a, a pit that somebody dug in the ground they got filled in there are the remnants of the original cave there there are things that could really be excavated to figure out you know what what were how were they producing this and what were they doing there what remnants of their work is left behind uh, uh, Martin Harris visited the site in the 1850s and spoke with uh, uh, Wallace Miner, who was living there at the time as a teenager, and told him that he thought the site was holy ground. Um, you know, Oliver Cowdery, as we talked about, may have done some of the copying of the Book of Mormon there, and the site is certainly related to the Latter-day Saint lore about a cave of records. And so this site has relevance for Mormon history in a number of ways. This is a Mormon historic site in several ways. And, you know, after the, so the current owners of the site, they were interested in, they, they've taken good care of it. They have taken good care of it. They've been aware of its historic value. 
They've avoided, you know, developing it in ways that might destroy it. However, another part of the hill very nearby that is not owned by them actually has had, has been recently uh, torn apart in order to get a landfill for the state of New York. And so that's a possible fate for the rest of the hill. That's a possible fate for Miner's Hill Cave is that this historically valuable cave that could be preserved and excavated, explored, and reveal a lot of things to us, it could just be destroyed, right? And so if it's not put in the hands of people who are aware of its historic value, that's a very possible, plausible, maybe even likely fate for the cave. And so if if a buyer who is aware of this value could purchase it, could it would be easy for them to register it as a New York State historic site and therefore permanently preserve it, right? And whoever purchased it, this wouldn't have to be an act of sheer charity, right? Because there's a house on it that could be rented out. It's a 10-acre property. This is a valuable property uh, in, in a number of ways, in addition to its historic value. And so uh, I had helped to arrange a sale that um, appears to have fallen through. There might be some question um, about the fate of that sale still that I'm looking into. But as of right now, it appears we really need urgently to try to find further buyers because most of the bids on it have just come from local people. They're just looking for a house. They just want a place to live. They're not looking at it for its potential historic value. So it's not clear whether, you know, if someone just looking for a house buys it, they might exclude that the current owners have allowed historians to go to the site, to explore the site and so on. Uh, we don't know if someone who doesn't realize the value of the site or, or isn't concerned about that buys it, they might exclude historians and researchers from the site. So it might be closed off to further research. They might develop the property in ways that would destroy the cave, or they might allow, you know, further like work, like uh, getting landfill from the site to happen, which would destroy the site. And so it's really important that this site get into the hands of someone who will preserve it, enable it to be excavated professionally so to see what we can learn and then possibly even to restore it and there, there might be all kinds of other you know things that could be done with the site um, there could be housing there that could be used for or, or or some other sort of venue that could be used for mormon history conferences in the future or you know th there's an endless range of possibilities but step one is we got to secure this we got to preserve this site Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'd like to express our thanks to Don Bradley for joining us and for our wonderful narrators, Mark Magula and Benji Pearson. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, as always, we appreciate all our listeners. That's right. We're going to see you soon. Angels and Seerstones is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can support this podcast and others in our network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com.